Good morning, Christ Prez. We are continuing our way through the book of Revelation. And one of the themes of this series has been this, things are not what they seem. The world as we see it may not be the world as it actually is. This book wants to radically disrupt our normal way of viewing the world by giving us a different perspective on reality. Things are not what they seem. And this theme continues in Revelation 12. It shows us that behind the reality we see every day, behind the ups and downs of human civilization and society, is a war. I'm not talking about a culture war or a war between political parties. I'm talking about a spiritual war, the great war, the cosmic war, a war that has been raging since the beginning of the world. This chapter claims that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you dare to follow the slain lamb, you are in this war, not just any war, but the great war of the cosmos, which is a hard message. You know, we often frame the trouble and struggle and tribulation that we experience in life as the big problem that Christian faith is meant to overcome. We think life shouldn't be filled with so much tribulation and trouble. Sure, there might be some trouble every now and then, but this, life shouldn't feel like a battle especially if we're Christians, right? I mean, didn't Jesus say that we can come to him and, and find rest and that his burden is light? Doesn't scripture talk about a deep peace that passes understanding? And so we assume that the stronger our faith is, the smoother the sailing should be. But Revelation is pulling back the veil and it's saying, wake up, this is what's really going on. You're in the middle of a war. You have an enemy who is trying to destroy you. Isn't it actually a relief to know this? To know that we're at war? Now, why would it be a relief? Well, imagine that we're all on a cruise ship. Let's say it's a corona-free cruise ship. Great food, uh, smooth jazz, lots of entertainment, beautiful scenery, exotic locations. Everybody's happy. This is the good life. But then we notice that Wait a second, part of the ship's deck is on fire. And suddenly the jazz drummer drops dead to the ground. The music comes to an awkward stop. And then some of the people dancing out on the deck begin running, screaming, falling over dead. Well, that's awful. But then it's actually a huge relief when someone informs you that, hey, guess what? This isn't a cruise ship. This is a battleship and you're in enemy territory in the middle of a war. Imagine trying to live on a battleship as if it's a cruise ship. That's going to be incredibly discouraging and frustrating, is it not? Where's the music, the dancing, the fun? Why isn't everything awesome? Why are people dying all around me? Why is there so much trouble and tribulation all the time? I should be having fun and moving from strength to strength and experiencing deep inner peace as I relax on the deck under my umbrella with my pina colada. Well, not if we're on a battleship, not if we're at war. And that's what Revelation 12 shows us. There is a war going on. No, not a war, the war, the war behind all other wars, the cosmic war. And it's so important that we see this family. Do you know the only thing more dangerous than being in the middle of a battlefield while a battle is raging? Not knowing that that's where you are. Wandering around the beach like you're in the Bahamas when you're really at Normandy on D-Day. We're at war. Let's look at, this, at what this passage shows us about our enemy, his weapons, and then our defense. Okay, so first, who's the enemy? 
Well, too often we think it's our spouse or our roommate or our kids or our neighbors or the political party with the candidate or policies we dislike or the people in our church with the questionable theology. But family, these are not our enemies, not really. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that our real enemies are not human but demonic. Our true fight is against supernatural evil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in a different way, Revelation 12 shows us this same truth. Listen again to verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Here's the real enemy. Here is the power behind all the devastation we've seen in the earlier chapters leading up to this one. A great red, seven-headed, ten-horned dragon. Now, because we're reading Revelation, we know that this is symbolic imagery. Thankfully, in verse 9, John identifies the dragon for us as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is a reference back to Genesis 3, when that snake shows up and leads Adam and Eve into sin. More on that in a moment. But we see that here, the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. The point is that, unfortunately for us, this is not a wimpy foe. He's extremely powerful. Verse 4 tells us that with his tail, he swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. It, It tells us that his power over this world is profoundly destructive. This is an enemy who can do extraordinary damage. What color is he? Red. Remember, that's a color that signifies in Revelation conflict and war. So if you thought this was just another dragon, like you might find in The Hobbit, or if you aim a big arrow in just the right way, you can take him down with one shot, think again. You have vastly overestimated yourself and vastly underestimated the enemy. On earth is not his equal. This enemy is for real, and he plays for keeps. He's hell-bent on destroying God's world and God's people. Now, does that sound far-fetched, too extreme? Listen, all the wisest people have known that evil is not a fable or a fairy tale, but a real and formidable presence in the world. You know, during the civil rights era, So many civil rights leaders and activists were saying that racism and segregation needed to be removed through social progress and human willpower. But Dr. King was different. He insisted that at at its base, the civil rights movement was a spiritual battle. He insisted that there were real forces of evil at work in the human heart and in society that could not be conquered merely through programs and laws. He said things like, quote, man cannot remove evil through his own power and ingenuity in the strange conviction that by thinking, inventing, and governing, he will at last conquer the nagging forces of evil. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, close quote. You see, King knew that there is real evil at work, and we desperately need God's help to deliver us. In this sense, all the wisest people know that the dragon exists. We have a real enemy. Revelation is calling us to wake up to the reality of the war. Now let's look at his weapons. What what is the enemy's strategy? How does he come at us? 
you know, in popular culture and even in some Christian circles, there's this idea that the main thing the devil does is possess people and that his main goal is to get you to kill cats and to play with Ouija boards. But at best, that's just a distraction from the main battle. Verse 9 tells us that the devil, Satan, is the deceiver of the whole world. That's the devil's main strategy, deception. The main way he tries to mess with us and mess with the world is by lying. It's not the only thing he does, but it's the main thing he does. He lies. In John 8, Jesus tells us that the devil has nothing to do with truth because there is not truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We see his deception going all the way back to Genesis 3, when that snake appears in the garden with Adam and Eve. Do you remember what that ancient serpent called into question? God's goodness. It wanted to get Adam and Eve second-guessing God's goodness and grace toward them. And the deception was really subtle. The snake just asked questions that were misleading, that mixed truth with falsehood. See, this is his specialty, his area of expertise, his real forte, injecting distorted perceptions of God and yourself and the world into your heart. He's a liar, and his lies are powerful and evil. Well, how do we experience his lies? In two big ways, I mean, in all kinds of ways, but let me just talk about two big ways that we experience his lies. Temptation and accusation. Temptation and accusation are two of the main ways that the devil lies to us. The devil tempts and he accuses, and this is really a deadly combination. These two sets of lies work together perfectly. In temptation, the devil is trying to make us take our sin too lightly. He wants us to think, it's not that bad. It's not a very big deal. Everybody's doing it. It's just a little thing, and you can always stop, and you can always get over it. You can always repent later and begin living a life that pleases God. There are all kinds of ways that temptation can come, but no matter how it comes, it's always with a lie that makes sin look less significant than it really is. It's always with the goal of making sin look like a small thing so that we take it too lightly. But the devil doesn't stop with temptation. He also lies with accusation. And in accusation, the devil is trying to make us take sin too heavily. He's trying to get us to feel all the awful weight of it. In fact, he's saying that we must bear the weight of it, that we're doomed to bear the weight of it. And do you see what a deadly combination this is? See, on the way into a sin, the devil is saying, it's just a little thing. You can always get out. And then once we're in, he says, you'll never get out. There's no exit. On the way in, he says, you can always repent. And then once we're in, he tells us that repentance is impossible. On the way in, he says, you can always ask for forgiveness later. And then once we've succumbed to temptation, he says, how could you possibly think that there's forgiveness for this? How could you ever believe that God is ready to forgive you after what you've done? He wants to lead us into sin and then keep us wrapped up in the sin. And he does it with this complementary set of lies. He tempts and he accuses. This has been called Satan's one-two punch. Now, I've never boxed, but I have watched all 37 of the Rocky movies. And so I think that makes me somewhat of an expert. Here's what my movie watching has taught me. The first punch really isn't the deadly punch. It's not the first hit that knocks us out. 
Temptation is like Satan's left hand, but he's right-handed. His power move is accusation. Remember, the word Satan just means the accuser. He jabs at us with, with the temptation, but it's all for the purpose of hitting us with the accusation. He tempts us in order to accuse us. And you see, the accusation is also the lie. The devil's goal is to keep us from knowing and trusting and experiencing the grace of God. He wants us to distrust the Father's love. He wants us to run and hide from God, just like our first parents did in the garden. He wants us to feel the full weight of our sin and unrighteousness and to think that the only option is cobbling together a righteousness of our own, clothing ourselves with leaves. How can we defend against this? Well, let's back up and get a sense of what's going on in this passage. We've talked about the dragon, but he's not the only combatant in the war. First, there's this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars. The fact that John says she is a sign means that she is a symbol. And in this case, um, all the clues point to her being a symbol for the people of God from whom the Messiah comes. For example, most scholars think that the imagery of the sun, moon, and 12 stars is a reference back to the book of Genesis, where Joseph has that dream that one day his siblings, who end up being the 12 tribes of Israel, would bow down to him like stars. Later, we see that the dragon is pursuing the woman, that she is, quote, given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. This seems to allude to the Exodus, when God's people are brought up out of slavery, pursued by Pharaoh, but God bears them on eagle's wings and brings them to the wilderness and then through the wilderness to himself. And remember the time frame. Here it's a time and times and half a time. It's a way of saying a year, two years, and a half year three and a half years altogether, which corresponds to the 42 months and to the 1,260 days, which we looked at last week. It's the same time period. And remember, I think it's best to take this as representing the entire time of the church's life between the first and last comings of Jesus. You know, Isaiah portrays Israel as a woman in labor waiting to give birth to the Messiah. And so in addition to the dragon, we have this woman who represents the people of God. She gives birth to a male child who um, is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now that's a clear reference to Psalm 2, which is frequently quoted in the New Testament and is always a reference to Jesus. This child is Jesus, the Messiah. This is the one who the dragon wants to devour. We're reminded that the dragon was trying to destroy the child from the very beginning. You can think of King Herod's attempt to have Jesus killed even when he was just a little baby. But the dragon's pursuit of Jesus wasn't just at his birth. Jesus spent his whole life surrounded by enemies. And behind those enemies, the real enemy, the dragon. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but we're reminded that behind institutions and systems are often dark powers behind our earthly enemies is often the, the work of the dragon. But the dragon's plans are thwarted. Verse 5, the child is snatched up to God and to his throne. See, in one quick snapshot, John is telling 
the entire story of Jesus from his birth to his death and resurrection and finally to his ascension where he reigns as Lord. And as a result, as you can see in verses 7 through 12, the major and conclusive battle of the war has been won. Verse 10, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. Literally, um, Satan has been bounced. He's been bounced out of heaven. Now, what does this mean? It means that Jesus has won. He has conquered evil through his death and resurrection. Satan is defeated through the cross. He's not fully vanquished. In fact, as you can see, he is, he's mad as heck. He has been thrown down to earth in a great rage. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Verse 12. He's doing everything he can to, to take out as many people as he possibly can before Jesus returns and destroys evil forever. In the meantime, listen. The Father wants you to know his love. He wants you to be as secure in his love as Jesus is, and the devil is set on doing everything he can to ruin that. Now, to be clear, the devil can't do anything to change the Father's love for you and me. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But the devil can do all kinds of things to mess with our knowing it and trusting it and experiencing it and living out of it. How do we defend against that? Well, Revelation tells us that the people of God have conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We stand against the evil one by standing under the finished work of Christ. We stand against the evil one by bearing witness to the finished work of Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer, reports that he was often visited by the devil who would lie to him and accuse him and say things like, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. And here's how Luther would respond. Well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mention, those I could add, and indeed those I have committed but am so wicked that I am unaware of have, having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient. Close quote. The blood of the Lamb family is sufficient. See, Luther knew what temptation looked like, and he knew the feel of accusation. He knew the evil in his own heart, but he also knew the all-surpassing perfection and grace of Christ. He knew how to look at Jesus more than at his sins, and he conquered by the blood of the Lamb. This week, the dragon is going to come at you with a lie. The father doesn't love you. The father doesn't care for you. You can't trust this God. If he did love you once, he can't anymore, given all your sin and failure. 
Get God to prove that he loves you. And when you hear those lies, remember Jesus Christ. God has proved his love for us. Jesus has already defeated the dragon, and he's done it for us in our place. He has lived for us and died for us. He has been raised from the dead for us. He is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion right now, and your life is hidden with God in him. We're in a great war. We have a terrible enemy, but we have a triumphant Savior. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He has won the battle. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.